Our gracious Heavenly Father, we've just been reminded, even as Pastor Elder Tim Townsend led us into just remembering the wonderful sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf, and then singing songs that lift our hearts to you and just remind us of your goodness and your graciousness and your kindness. Lord, you have been so good to your people. We thank you that though we deserve hell and condemnation in Christ, you have given us forgiveness and eternal life now and forevermore, true life and life abundantly indeed. You have given us hope and everything that pertains to life and godliness and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Lord, thank you. We are so grateful to you. This morning, help us to listen out of a heart of love and gratitude to you for what you would have to say to us about the ultimate hope that we have in the second coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. As my brother Ian said, we're back in Mark 13, verses 24 to 27, and I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to stand. If you're not, because of physical reasons, it's okay. Just follow along in your Bibles. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. Hear the Word of the Lord. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And and then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, as you know, lockdown last year was just a crazy time for all of us. Um, just a hard, difficult time. So many of us have been in conversations about that and all of the challenges that God brought forth to our lives. Sports ended for a while. seems like every activity ceased and paused for a period of time. There were restrictions everywhere. And, of course, for you mom, young mamas of young children, you were especially impacted by the fact that even parks temporarily shut down and you couldn't take your little ones to the park, and that was very difficult. And for most of us... Because of these lockdowns and restrictions, we had to find creative ways of using our time, hopefully wisely, right? I know that for the Hernandez home, we tried to do that by the grace of God, sometimes failing for the most part, I think, by God's grace, using our time wisely and just even spending sweet time together, as many of you as families did in your home. We did some deep cleaning of our home and yard and all of that good stuff. But one of the things that we made sure we did on our downtime Having a little bit more time available was re-watching some of the old classic movies, right? How many of you got a chance to do that? Don't lie. Don't try to be all spiritual right now and say you didn't watch movies. Come on. Some of you were on Facebook emailing asking for good things to watch. So don't lie right now, okay? But, you know, some of us spend time watching old classic movies. Uh, for example, the Hernandez's love the Hobbit series. How many of you love that? Yes. How many of you love the Lord of the Rings movies? Yes, a little more. All right, I like that. I like that. You know, some of us like the Hobbit series a little bit more than the Lord of the Rings, but I personally like the Lord of the Rings series especially. And so we got to do that as a family to watch that and uh, just enjoy that. And it's always good to see that journey, right? 
that took place in that movie, all the twists and turns, the warriors in the movie, and then the trials that they went through, and the opposition, and I especially love the battles and the wars that took place. Those are my favorite, and that's why I love um, war-type movies. And so there were great wars even in there. But by, by far, my favorite part in that Lord of the Rings movie is the end when Aragon, the long-awaited king, the chosen one, is finally crowned as king of earth among men. I love that part and the whole, the honor that was given to him and all of that and in light of everything that he went through and all of his friends and partners and everything that helped him get to that point, if you will. It was only a matter of time before Aragon, the real king, exercised his reign on earth. For me, that was the best moment. That was the coolest moment of that movie, The Return of the King. I think that's one one of the movies is titled that, right? The Return of the King. Well, this morning, I want you to know that we get the opportunity to consider not the return of just another human king, like many kings that have come before, but to consider the return of the one true king of the universe, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And I love that. I didn't set it up so that I would come back from vacation to do this initially, as you guys know, three years ago when I started Mark. Is that how long we've been in Mark? Okay. Our goal is to finish by December, just so you know. And then, pending my elder's approval, we will be kicking off January by looking at the book of James together. Okay? We'll be looking at James together for a few months. But I didn't set myself to come back from vacation uh, originally and deal with the second coming of Christ. But what a fitting um, uh, theme to deal with this morning from these particular verses. The second coming of Christ. To consider the, the future hope that we have as Christians in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is such an important theme for us as believers, especially in the midst of everything that we have seen the last year. Amen? There's been such, so much hardship, so much hostility, so much exploitation in our world. How fitting that we would focus upon our hope. And you know, it's been often said that Christians are, are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. That we are so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good oftentimes. But I think that it's even more true that we can be so earthly-minded that we are no heavenly good. That too often, if we're honest, our focus is too much on earthly comforts, too much on earthly possessions, too much on health, wealth, and prosperity in our hearts. We idolize the things of this world way too much. We focus too much on the, on the here and now rather than on the there and then in heaven. That's why Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, you've read it before, instructs Christians that we should set our eyes on the things where? Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 reminds us as Christians that our citizenship is where? In heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior. What's His name, beloved? The Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter instructs suffering Christians, suffering Christians, Beloved, I urge you as aliens 
and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. In other words, Peter says, folks, Christians, you are not of this world. This world is not your own. So live like it. Live in the light of eternity. Live as aliens and as strangers. Don't idolize the things of this world. Those things wage war against your soul. And isn't it true that if you're going to live in the light of eternity, then you need to remember that your hope is not found in a better society, in a better government that is just, in a better state of health, wealth, and prosperity. Beloved, if we're going to live victoriously in the light of eternity, knowing that this world is not our home, then we will live mindful that our hope is located not in the stuff that this world has to offer, but in the return of Christ. Amen? Amen. In His soon return. And it's this return of Christ that is our focus today together from this wonderful text here in Mark 13. We've been walking through this chapter, glorious chapter, in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Where the Lord Jesus, in essence, pulls back the curtain, showing us what is to come in the future, at the end of the age. That was the answer that he's answering, or the question that he's answering. The disciples were asking about the end of the age. When are these things to be? And he's been answering that in the Olivet Discourse. And we've seen that Christ's return is going to take place after this growing, intensifying time of uncontrolled deception, unparalleled division, unprecedented disasters, and unequaled distress. You saw that in the weeks past in the Gospel of Mark, all of those aspects in the previous verses. And I've told you again and again that though the church, the last 2,000 years or so, has certainly seen glimpses foreshadowings, if you will, of some of what Jesus says here, what Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse are growing unprecedented, unrivaled times of trouble and suffering that will escalate. That's what he's been describing. Now, after describing what is known as the Great Tribulation in verses 14 through 23, and we've seen this, he turns the corner in verses 24 to 27 to remind us of our sure hope. Our joyful hope, which is the return of Christ, His own return. And we want to focus our thoughts on the Lord's return this morning by hanging our thoughts on four, under four primary headings, okay? Or three primary headings. First, I want you to notice in these verses, verses 14, uh, 24 to 27, the timing of His return. The timing of Jesus' return. Notice, but in these days, after the tribulation... In these days after the tribulation. Now these opening words of Jesus might seem sort of mundane to us. Maybe a bit unimportant. But what we have here is crucially important. And even as we think of today's day and age and what we've experienced the last year plus. Think about how important what Jesus says here is. You know there are many people, even Christians, who've been tempted in this area. And i got to be honest, me as well. Where we look at all that's transpiring in our world, even passages like these and others, and we forget that we know how the story ends, right? We forget about this. Consequently, we can be tempted to live very purposeless, very joyless lives, 
or lives where we're, we're constantly, even subtly, pursuing after the things of this world, things that don't matter, things that are of no lasting eternal value. Maybe we live for things that perish and will pass away. We need to remember that Jesus, in a sense, tells us here that His return is certain by specifying and pinpointing for us exactly when He's going to return. It is a fact, His return. He reminds us here that you can bank on His return and when these things will happen. Look at verse 24. In, but in those days. What days, Lord? The birth pangs that He's been describing in verses 14 through 23. In those days, after that tribulation, after that great time of, a, of unrivaled, unprecedented suffering and trouble that God will bring upon the world, it's on the heels of that great tribulation when all seems that there is no hope. Here comes Jesus, our hero. Amen? You remember? It was 1988. The ultimate David and Goliath matchup in the World Series. Right? Dodgers versus the A's, the elephants they used to call them, because they were huge, they were pounding home runs left and right all over the place. We remember that. It's hard for me to, to rejoice in last year's World Series championship, but I still keep thinking about 1988, because I was a little dude just admiring what happened there. And you remember the matchup. Nobody gave the Dodgers a chance, and then they go against the Oakland A's, Game one of the World Series, the A's are winning, bottom of the ninth. The hero of the Dodgers all year long has been Kirk Gibson, a great player. I think he was the MVP that year. But he's hurt. He's nowhere to be found, at least on the field, right? And the Dodgers are losing in the bottom of the ninth inning. seems like all hope is lost. And now they're rallying. They're down by one run. And who trots out of the dugout? Kirk Gibson, baby. Right? He could barely walk. The guy's limping out to the batter's box. And he could barely stand up there. You wondered how in the world he was able to swing so many times and foul things off. It was amazing. And the crowd's going wild. And you can, you just, it's just a moment of tension. And what happens? He goes against the great, the great, one of the greatest closers in the league, Dennis Eckersley. And what happened at the time? He cranks a home run, right? And I mean, it, the crowd is going wild. And Dodger Stadium is shaking with convulsions. And people are running to the field. And there's security officers tackling these guys who want to go and hug the Dodgers because Kirk Gibson's hit a two-run home run to win game one of the World Series. In the last minute, the great hero of the Dodgers did this. And I just cannot forget that moment. And I couldn't help, beloved, to think about how even in life, we get little glimpses and examples like that of the ultimate moment of hope. When all seems lost, at the, on the heels of the great tribulation, the worst of times, who is going to come and hit the ultimate grand slam? The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? The return of Jesus. I love this. Without hesitation, without warning, without any pause, Jesus will return. Jesus is not saying here in verse 24, this might happen. He's not saying, you know, there's a good chance I may return, depending on some circumstances that I'm trying to weigh out right now as I watch what's going on in the world. 
He's not saying, pending how things go, pending things don't get too much out of control, then I will come. No, he's saying, as bad as things will get during the Great Tribulation, I will return. It is absolutely certain. You can bank on it. And the timing is after that tribulation. What an amazing, amazing thing. I got to tell you, as I read Mark over the three weeks of vacation... I was reading through my Old Testament, my Old Testament reading, as most of you are doing, and in New Testament, I'm just reading through the Gospel of Mark, and I just kept rejoicing in this particular moment. I'm thinking, wow, even the saints, people who came to know Christ during the tribulation, and who were living or who are going to be living during the tribulation, how amazing that it's Jesus returns at the very moment where maybe they they're losing hope, and Christ returns, and it led me to worship and to praise God. For the hope that we have. And I hope, beloved, that that's what you've been led to throughout the, this time that we've studied Mark 13. That as you see the things that, have, that will transpire and will escalate in the end of days. That because of your faith in Jesus, you rejoice in the hope that you have. That is unwavering. That is certain. Amen? Because it's based upon Christ's merits, as Tim Townsend told us earlier. Not on anything that we do. Not on any passing circumstances in our world. It's all about the rock of Christ and what He brings in the end. Elsewhere, Scripture comforts the Christian much with what is known as the eminent return of Christ. Eminent means that Christ's return will surely happen at, at any time. That it can happen at any moment. From the perspective of the biblical writers, you understand. They teach continually the eminent return of Christ. That's how they wrote to the churches at the time. For example, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7 tells us the end of all things is near. And that was Peter writing to believers, by the way, sometime around between A.D. 64 or 65, some 2,000 years ago. He says, believers who are being persecuted, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. James chapter 5 and verse 8, listen to this. You too, Christian, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is what? Near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, listen to this. And let us consider how to stimulate one another, believers, to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says to believers, in light of the end, in light of the imminent return of Christ, keep provoking one another to love and good deeds. Keep gathering for the purpose of edifying one another. Keep the encouragement going. Keep body, life, fervent and vibrant. Amen? That is why, beloved, as a side note, we believe that we need to let the church be fully the church during this time. Because God uses the church, one another, and one another's lives to allow us to endure in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God. To persevere even in difficult times such as the ones that we're living in right now. That's in obedience to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And so our Lord tells us the timing of His return. It's certain. It's going to absolutely happen. I love this. On the heels of the great tribulation, here comes the return of the King. Notice second. Second, the trouble before His return. There is trouble, yet more trouble, before His return. 
Jesus says in the middle of verse 24, notice, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Verse 25, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. I got to tell you, back in 1993, when the Lord saved me and I started reading through the Gospels, I remember as a new believer reading this and thinking, is this to be taken literal? Is this to be taken literally here? What's going on? Is this actually going to happen? What is the answer? Yes. Yes. Everything else in verses 14 through 23 is figurative or literal. Literal. Why not these things? Why couldn't the creator of the universe who created ex nihilo, everything out of nothing, have not have the power to do these things right here? This is to be fulfilled literally. And wow, what amazing events. And I find it amazing that even after everything that Jesus has said will happen during the tribulation, that things reach an unparalleled climax right before Christ returns here. There's even greater trouble, greater suffering described here. And what we have are some shocking events to say the least. Notice the sun, the sun, while the earth, which the earth depends upon, the nearest star to us, that beautiful entity that provides heat and light to humanity, that provides us with what we call day, according to Genesis chapter 1, as God created the sun, will no longer give its light during this time. That beautiful moon, which we all love watching at nighttime, which at night, from our perspective, is seen in various glorious shapes. Notice, will no longer give its light or be seen by the human eye. In other words, the point is, the normal order of things will be completely disrupted. Those wonderful heavenly bodies, those wonderful heavenly entities that God created to give us day and night will no longer operate by the laws of nature as we know it. I mean, this is a terrifying time. Terrifying time. And it even gets worse. Look at verse 25. And the stars will be falling from heaven. Now think about that one for a minute. Question. How many stars are in the universe? Anyone? Billions of them, right? I mean, astronomers estimate that just in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, there are some 300 billion stars. That's just our galaxy alone. Question. How big are these stars? How big are these stars? They are enormous, aren't they? They are enormous. Just to put it in perspective, our sun, which is an average star, is 109 times wider in diameter than planet Earth. That's amazing. That's amazing. But there are stars, listen to this, that are 100 times bigger than the sun. Amazing. So much for twinkle, twinkle, little star, right? Seriously. I get it. I get it. You know, we've all done it with our kids. But so much for that. These are massive things, these stars. And to think for a minute and to ponder this, that these heavenly bodies, these heavenly realities will be falling from heaven one after another is terrifying and staggering, isn't it? That this is going to be taking place. And I'll tell you what. This must have been a shock to many in Mark's day. Because in that Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day, stars were believed to be heavenly powers, heavenly forces that, that greatly influenced human affairs. 
Some people even worship the sun, worship the moon, worship heavenly entities like the stars, and they considered them to be gods with a little g. Things that determine their future even, to be revered and, and even prayed to. But what Jesus says here is that, that God will so confuse in his sovereignty these massive stars, he's going to break their normal, orderly pattern of existence. They will go into a state of disorder. They will go in disarray. They will go crazy. Star after star will be falling from heaven. Just ponder that. Frightening times. Furthermore, look at verse 25. The powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. What does that mean? Well, that word shaken there is used in Acts chapter 16, verse 26, of the convulsions caused by an earthquake, of the foundations of a building being shaken violently by an earthquake. In the same way, what the Lord is saying is that the powers of the universe will violently go into convulsions, will shake violently. And so the question is, what are these powers what are these powers? Well, some believe that these powers refer to the impersonal, physical forces of nature which will cause such shaking. While others believe that these powers are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, that Satan himself and his demons, upon seeing such catastrophic events, will violently shake. Either of those or a combination of both could be true. But what we have here are, are heavenly tremors. Heavenly earthquakes, vast, violent convulsions that will take place in the heavens. And the point is that God will bring the universe as we know it into full-blown confusion and chaos. This orderly cosmos that we've known. You see, in the present, we take so much for granted, don't we? I do, truth be told. Especially here in America, it's so easy for us to take life for granted. And our expectation subtle expectation even, is that we're going to go to bed tonight and the next morning, what's going to happen? The sun will come out. We even sing a song, right? The sun will come out tomorrow, right? Some of you kids know that song. You get the point, right? It's based upon an assumption. Every day the sun will come out. The climate will be bearable. We will have hot water coming out in our shower of our shower head. All of those things are taken for granted. And I think, beloved, especially as Christians living in America, we forget that God is the one who sustains the world and the universe as we know it. This truth is in direct opposition to deism. Deism. The belief that God created a universe, but then just sort of let it go. So sort of like, like rolling a, a snowball down the hill. He created it, sort of lets it go, that the universe, God never intervenes in the affairs of his universe. There are forces of nature, independent of him, beyond his control, that basically sustain the universe. This view is wrong, heretical, and sinful. It's unbiblical. The Bible tells us that God not only created the world and the universe, ex nihilo, out of nothing, but also sustains it. He sustains the universe, that he's actively engaged in the affairs of his creation, big or small. As R.C. Sproul once put it, there's not one maverick molecule in the universe. Everything is dependent upon God. And we forget passages like Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. That Christ is before all things, and here it is, and holds together all things. 
Listen, there's an orderly system that God preserves and protects for his glory and our good because of his common grace to all humanity. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And here it is, and continually is the sense, upholds or sustains all things by the word of his power. That's how mighty Jesus is. He's not only creator of the universe, he is the sustainer of the whole universe. Not one thing, big or small, gigantic or microscopic, is out of the control of Christ or operates independent of Christ. That's the Lord and the Savior of your life. The one who is in utter control of everything and sustains everything. And so I think that in the present... As we read things like these in Mark, we forget that were it not for God's sustaining of it all, the universe would instantly disassemble, instantly go into chaos and perish. Well, in the end, pay attention. Right before Christ returns, this is exactly what happens, beloved. This is what happens. All of this chaos and confusion is under the sovereign hand of God, is part of the plan, but it's the, the fullness of, and manifestation of God's just wrath and judgment fully on display. Now listen, Jesus isn't just making these things up here in Mark 13. He's not just coming up with some new ideas never before seen. He's merely telling us what the Old Testament has already told us, right? You will notice that in verses 24 and 25, if you look there, Some of the descriptions of these catastrophic cosmic events are in caps. Do you see that? They are in caps. These words in caps signal Old Testament direct quotations or allusions. In other words, these events are are foretold in in the Old Testament. For example, go with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Okay, Go with me to Isaiah 13. I want you to see this. Isaiah 13. And verse 6, here Isaiah is speaking about, about the day of the Lord, which is really code in the Old Testament for the ultimate day of God's wrath, of God's judgment. And see if you can find any similarities to what Jesus just said. Isaiah 13 and verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, he says. It will come as, a, as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Look at verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Sound familiar? It's Mark 13. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Turn with me to Joel chapter 2. Forward to Joel chapter 2. Just for a minute. And there's so many other texts that we can go to, but I just want you to see a sampling of this. Joel chapter 2 and verse 10, also speaking of the, about the coming day of the Lord. Joel 2 and verse 10. Before them the earthquakes, 
The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow what? Dark. And the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Go forward with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 6. This is when the sixth seal is broken here. Revelation 6 and verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun, here it is, became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split, split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? I mean, can you imagine those days? Unbelievable. Now listen, Joel wrote the words that we just read some 800, approximately 800 years before Jesus' words of Mark 13. Isaiah, some 700, approximately some 700 years before Jesus' words of Mark 13. And John, recording the revelation from Jesus, wrote sometime around 90 A.D., All of these describing the troubling and terrifying time right before the return of Christ. And these things are not figurative things. They are to be taken at face value as cosmic realities that will take place in the future. So our Lord is not foretelling something new here. He's merely reiterating Old Testament Holy Scripture. And He's turning on the light, so to speak, to say... While those things in the Old Testament had a near fulfillment, in an ultimate sense they had a far fulfillment, pointing to the end of days right before my return. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. All of this catastrophe is very sobering, isn't it? Very sobering. A few weeks ago, somebody, and and I appreciated the question, somebody came up to me out front and just asked me, Pastor Kempis, when you're teaching us these things from Mark, these frightening things that Jesus is speaking about. Are you saying that, that this is it? I mean, is, are you saying that that's what he, he's saying, that this is it? That this is the end? And of course, I answered them, that's exactly what I'm saying. But more so, that's what Jesus is saying to us. He's unveiling the future. He's pulling back the curtain and showing us the end of the age. That's exactly what we're saying. Now, what's sad about this is that some people don't have the response of that humble person who at least is moved and shaken in their hearts as to ask, what are the implications for my life? What's sad about people who come in, and maybe you are there this morning, as you've heard some of the messages from Mark 13 about the future things, what's sad is that some people read this, and instead of responding with a heart that says, how sobering. How frightening. You know, I need to make sure that I'm right with God. 
If these things are true, and if Jesus is dependable, which he is, and these things are certain, how much more do I need to make sure that I'm right with God? I need to repent of my sins. I need to trust in Christ. If you're telling me that according to John 3.16, this gracious, loving God also sent His Son Jesus into the world to die for sinners like me in my place, then I need to repent of my sins and trust in Jesus. Beloved, unfortunately, not everybody responds that way. Instead of that kind of hard attitude, what do they say? How mean. How mean of God to do all of this. I've witnessed to people who've told me something along that, those lines. How mean. What an uncontrolled, wrathful, angry kind of God you worship. What kind of a God does such things? There are some who respond with humility. And there are some who respond with a stern pride when they hear these things. So you know what the problem is? As we read these things, people have a strong sense of justice only when it's convenient for them and when it applies to them. Right? We're the same way. We're the same way. It's like when we get bypassed unjustly in our workplace, right? And someone unjustly, legitimately gets the promotion instead of us. How do you feel after that one? Outrage. A sense of injustice, if it's legitimate. We have a strong sense of of injustice. Or when you take your little child to the park, to the local park, and some bigger kid pushes them off the swing and sits down on the swing. How do you feel, parents? Outrage. Injustice. How could that kid... I'm going to find that parent right now. I need to put that little dude or dudette in their place. I move my kid out of the swing. See, we feel outrage. We want to fight for justice. We understand justice on the human level and feel entitled to it. But beloved, when it comes to God, when it comes to God, we're uncomfortable with His justice, aren't we? People are uncomfortable with His justice. And their response to anything that God does, as revealed in Scripture or in life, is who does He think He is? What right does he have to do such things as those outlined in Mark chapter 13? Who does he think he is? But, think about this. Suppose you created a beautiful world. Suppose that you created a beautiful universe where you're going to put your glory on display. You don't need anyone to praise you. You're sufficient in yourself. But you are creating this beautiful, wondrous universe with many, many galaxies that people don't live in, right? But it's so vast and and great and immeasurable just as a display of the majesty and the glory of God. Suppose you created a universe like that. And then out of the kindness of your heart, out of love, you create creatures to enjoy this universe with you and to give you glory, and to worship you, and to be devoted to you. And you put everything in this world for their enjoyment unto your glory. And instead of them giving you thanks, 
Instead of them living out their purpose of giving you glory, of enjoying you now and forevermore, what do these creatures do? They rebel against you, against your kindness, against your goodness. Beloved, this is what we have done. Every single human born into this world, we've rebelled against our righteous and holy Creator, right? What is salvation? What is salvation? God sending His own beloved Son into the world to unworthy rebel sinners, to die on the cross in the place of sinners such as us, and to rise from the dead three days later. So that by faith in that atoning sacrifice and resurrection, you and I can be restored to our Maker. You and I could be forgiven of our sins. You and I could receive eternal life. Quality and quantity of life, both in the present and forevermore, by faith in who alone? In Christ alone. Salvation restores us to that wonderful, wonderful purpose for which God created us to give Him glory. And I just want to encourage you and exhort you if you're here this morning physically or if you're watching by live stream, as you hear these messages, I want you to know that God is not a God who basically by surprise or chance has you listening to these messages. He wants you to listen to these messages so that you understand that He's being patient toward you, not wanting you to perish, but for you to come to repentance. Amen? Amen. Repent of your sins. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be forgiven of your sins. Be reconciled to your Maker. Receive eternal life now and forevermore. Live out your purpose for which you've been created, creature of God, to give Him glory, to enjoy Him. Now listen, if this is where things would end, and this, is, this was the end of the story, we, we would have all people most to be pitied, right? But thanks be to God that this is not where things end. Consider third, the triumph of his return. The triumph of his return. What we see here in verses 26 through 27 is that even the destruction of the world cannot eclipse the return of the glorious Son of God, right? I love what Arkin Hughes comments here, quote, How comforting that amidst all this cosmological chaos and confusion, Jesus will come in shining clouds of glory. While the, while the sun, S-U-N, will no longer give its light, the sun, S-O-N, the light of the world, now will shine brighter than ever, end quote. I love that. That's good stuff, man. Look at verse 26. Then, in other words, immediately after these climactic events, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. I love that. We've seen that little that title before, Son of Man. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 where, where Daniel has a vision of the future Messiah who is called the Son of Man who we now know to be Jesus, right? Daniel seven thirteen. Listen to what he says. I, Daniel, kept looking in the night visions and behold, in other words, pay attention. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There in Daniel seven thirteen, what do we see but that the future Messiah 
will be affirmed and crowned as Lord and given an unrivaled kingdom which will never perish or end, beloved. Amazing. And he's glorious and majestic. That's what verse 26 is telling us. That the Son of Man, look in verse 26, will come with great power and glory. What does this mean? What does it mean? It's pointing to his, his majesty, right? As king. Surely it means that he, in his person, is one who possesses great power and glory. He is, in his being, intrinsically powerful, glorious, and majestic, right? This is our king. This is our Lord. But also that he will come in full display of such majesty, power, and glory. He will come, notice, enveloped in clouds. Often in the Old Testament, clouds would symbolize God's awesome presence, His his unmatched glory and majesty. This will be the case with Jesus, the Son of Man. I love Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. It's a beautiful passage. Behold, He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him. In other words, no one will miss this right here. No one. Even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. This is what Jesus is speaking about here in Mark, beloved. His glorious return. The same Jesus who will be worshipped or is being worshipped by myriads and myriads of angels in heaven who are declaring continually, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power and wisdom. That's the same glory that he will come in look at verse 27 upon his arrival he will send forth the angels these are those fearsome angelic hosts we read so much about in scripture heavenly creatures he will come with an army of angels i mean one angel that can wipe out many cities he will come with an army of those and he will summon them to go throughout the earth notice to gather together his elect This is speaking of his chosen ones, his followers, of his people. And of course we know, putting this in context, that this is true of the elect of all time, that Jesus will gather ultimately all of his elect of past, present, and future. But here, on the heels of the great tribulation, this is specifically speaking of those who are saved during the tribulation and live to tell about it, who survive the great tribulation. They will be gathered to Christ. Look at verse 27. He will gather them from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Oh, that's a, that language is simply another way of saying from everywhere, from all parts of the world, none of Christ's elect will be lost. None of his pe- precious people will be kept out. None of them will be exempt. There will not be a corner in some remote part of the world where Jesus will not pluck out and gather his people unto himself. Boy, what comfort and encouragement, isn't it? What comfort. Reminds me of our Lord's words in John chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus later on comforts his disciples, present and future, with the following words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they, listen to this, will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh, beloved, 
I submit to you that especially during these tumultuous times, these uncertain times in which we live, those passages are such comforting passages, aren't they? For our encouragement and our comfort. That those who belong to Christ are forever His. He will provide for us. He will protect us. He will preserve us safely until the end as He will do His elect at the time. If that's true then, how much is it true now? We can trust Him. Amen? We can trust Him. We can trust Him. That no matter what happens in our world in the present time, no matter what difficulties you are experiencing of a physical, emotional, or spiritual nature, if you are in Christ, beloved, one day you will rise again and you will be with your Savior. Amen? Amen. How comforting that should be for us. How about for those of us who've lost loved ones? Think about that. Just this past year, I don't know about you, but I've had so many friends, family, distant family, brethren in the church who have passed away. And specifically, even those who've died in Christ. These kinds of passages for me are such comforting passages. Because we know what's going to happen with those who have died in Christ, right? Even some of your beloved brethren and family members who have died in Christ just this past year. For some of you dear ones. This should bring great encouragement to us to be reminded of the fact that one day you will see Christ and maybe our relationship with those that we know here on the human level will be different in heaven, but we will see our beloved family and friends in Christ once again. Amen? Amen. It's a wonderful truth. It should comfort us that our precious Lord is returning so that we have hope. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will, what? Rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And listen to this. Therefore, brethren, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another from parakaleo, which means to come alongside of someone else to exhort or encourage or comfort. As we think about the end times, beloved, and the coming return of Christ, we should comfort one another with those wonderful realities. That those who are suffering trials in this life, and even those who have lost loved ones, would be encouraged and will be comforted by what is to come. Amen? Jesus comforted his disciples in the upper room later on, surely with that framework of his return in mind. John 14, 1, he said to his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Why were they troubled? Why were Jesus' disciples troubled? Because here is their Lord, who they had been with for three plus years, spent a lot of time with him, in his presence, walked with him, talked with him, heard him teach, saw him how he responded so graciously and appropriately forthrightly with people when they come. They came and opposed him. They watched all of that. They watched all of his miracles. And now he is going to suffer and die. And the reason why he says, do not let your heart be troubled, is because that's precisely what they were feeling at the moment. But then he says, you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Believer, listen to me this morning. That, is not, that was not just a promise for his present disciples at the time. That is a promise for you who are in Christ. Amen? Amen. He has gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Wow, how encouraging, how comforting. And this is, brethren, where our focus needs to be, even in the present time, in the tumultuous times in which we live right now, in our country and in our world. Let us focus on the heavenly realities that are to come when Jesus returns. Amen? Amen. Let, us redeem, let us redeem the time. Let us remember that we have a mission on earth. Here, this perspective of the return of Christ is to shape and to fuel our passion and pursuit of mission, the mission of the Great Commission to make disciples. Amen? Without this, I don't know how in the world you have persevered and how you have endured as you think about this past year. I just got to tell you, there's no answer that I have. No answer other than Christ. Christ, He is the one that has allowed me to endure by His grace, and that it goes for you as well. And the perspective that one day, all pain, all suffering, everything will be no more in Christ Jesus. Amen, beloved? Are we looking forward to that day? It is all possible because of the return of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the wonderful reminder Lord, the sobering reminder, first of all, of the things that are going to take place in the future, culminating in the great tribulation. And yet, Lord, how amazing that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we don't need to fear death in the present or even eternal death in the future because we are in union with Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that your son is. Thank you for the reminder through just the commemoration of the Lord's Supper even earlier. That when Christ died on the cross, he proclaimed, it is finished. We thank you for that. And we thank you that he rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death on our behalf. So that one day when he returns, we will have hope. We will be with him in a new heavens and a new earth. We look forward to that. Father, as we prepare for that, grant us the grace and the enabling power by your spirit to be people who live on mission. Remember the words of Acts chapter 1 upon Jesus' ascension, that he desired that his present disciples and future disciples, us who are in Christ, that as we await his return, that we would be people who make disciples. Help us to do that, Lord. And help us to be fueled by the hope that we have in the return of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.